Hey, welcome to the second ever bonus episode of Never To Be Seen Again, the podcast. As always, I am Laura. So in episode 11, I covered missing cases in Nebraska. I selected a case that at the last minute I opted not to cover because it was pretty extensive. I decided to just go ahead and put it in a bonus episode for you to enjoy. That way I could tell you every single sordid detail. This is quite the story and it is pretty old. It is actually the oldest missing person case on the Doe Network in Nebraska. I'm not sure how well known this case is, but I know that I've never heard about it before. I started researching it. It has a little bit of everything. Uh, forbidden love, murder, a prison escape, and of course a disappearance. This is the case of William Leslie Arnold. William is case number 4157 DMNE in the Doe Network and case number MP2677 in NamUs. He is not on the Charlie Project though. He was born on August 28th of 1942. He'd only be 77 now. He, uh, he is a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. I think his hair may be gray by now, though. Um, he was 5'9 and 155 pounds at the time of his disappearance. Uh, William has a small scar in the center of his forehead, a scar on his upper right arm, and moles and or scars on his right cheek. There is no clothing description for the last time he was seen, though. Leslie, or Les, as he is often called, was born on that August 28th day to Opal and Bill Arnold. Three years later, they had a second son, Jim. Leslie grew up. He was often described as high-strung and flighty, and he was also known around the neighborhood for his violent temper. He was easily frustrated, and usually when he was frustrated, he threw tantrums or lashed out. A boy who once knew Leslie said, We were scared of him, especially after he tried to choke my brother in an argument that started as a fight with water balloons. Jim recalled that Leslie would smash his model airplanes when he failed to put them together the right way. Leslie would frequently physically abuse Jim. Les's temper had uh, uh, no stopper once it exploded. Jim recalled, I always had the feeling he didn't understand why mom and dad had me when they had him already. Leslie had a tumultuous relationship with his mother, and I can't imagine that his relationship with, with Bill was much better. Now, let's travel back in time to Saturday, September 27th of 1958. Leslie is now 18, I'm sorry, 16 and a junior in high school in Omaha. Leslie had a girlfriend whose name was Crystal. On this night, he wanted to use the family car to take her out. He asked his mother to borrow the car. Opal, who was often described as, domineer, as, described as a domineering woman, disapproved of Leslie and Crystal's relationship and basically told him so. Opal's strong opinion, coupled with the increased tension between the two, led to a blow-up by Leslie. Leslie enters his parents' bedroom and opens the closet. He takes a twenty-two caliber rifle out of the closet and walks back to the kitchen where his mother is standing. Opal turns and sees Leslie standing with the gun. She laughs and says, What are you going to do? Shoot me? 
I'm sure her, to her surprise, that's exactly what he did. He shot her six times in the chest. Almost all of those shots entered her heart. Opal died on that kitchen floor. Leslie made himself busy around the house. Um, Bill arrived home a short time later. He entered the kitchen and saw his wife dead on the floor. In shock and disbelief, Bill lunged at Leslie. Leslie shot Bill six times in the chest as well. Most of those rounds entered Bill's heart as well. Both Bill and Opal now lay dead on the floor of the home they raised their two sons in, the home that their son had now killed them in. Leslie then dragged Bill and Opal's bodies uh, to the basement and covered them with rugs. Jim arrived home from ushering at the uh, Axar uh, Ben Rod Rodeo that night. Leslie told Jim that their parents had gone visiting and that is why they were not home. Leslie calls up a family friend by the name of Rose, uh, Rose Grossman. He told her that his parents were suddenly called out of town to Loop City to look after his senile grandfather. He said his grandfather had wandered off and gotten lost. Of course, this was a lie, but Rose didn't know any better. She, he asked Rose to take care of Jim until his parents returned, and she happily agreed. With Jim at Rose's, Leslie uh, uh, went and took a bath and dressed nicely. He used the family car to take Crystal and her brother to the drive-in movie to watch No Time for Sergeants and a horror film, The Undead. After the movie, they head over to Tyner's, a drive-in burger and malt shop. After grabbing a bite, he drives Crystal and her brother home. Leslie then returns to his home where his parents are still laying dead in the basement under rugs. Maybe it was his conscience, or maybe it was his parents' ghost, but Leslie couldn't sleep in that house that night. He went out to the car to sleep, but he soon discovered that it was too cold. He finally went into his room, turned the radio up, and fell asleep. The next morning, Sunday morning, Leslie woke up, got dressed, and headed off to attend church services. While in the church, though, he became so convinced that the sermon was about him that the, he ran out of the church in tears. Coincidentally, the sermon was about the sinfulness of crime. That night, in the cover of darkness, Leslie dug in the backyard for nearly two hours. He created a grave that was six foot long, two foot wide, and one foot deep. He then went into the basement and unrolled his parents' bodies from those rugs. He removed his father's belt and strung it around the bodies. He used the belt to pull the bodies up the stairs to the kitchen, through the garage, and over the hole he had dug in the backyard. He tossed his father's body in the hole first, and then threw his mother in on top of him. He mumbled a little prayer, and then covered the shallow grave. He then drove to 80th and F Street and tossed the carpet off the carpets off the bridge and into the big pap uh, Papillion uh, Creek, I think that's how you say it. Too shook up to sleep again, he walked over to Rose Grossman's house. He knocked on the door and asked Rose if he could sleep there. Rose let him in to sleep, but she noticed that Leslie was exhausted and had blisters on the palms of his hands. For the next two weeks, Leslie lived life as if nothing had changed. He attended school and returned home 
to the home he had murdered his parents in. He also took Crystal out on dates during that two-week period and acted as if nothing was wrong. Leslie was a solid B student, well-liked by his teachers, a member of the ROTC, uh, ROTC Corps, and participated in track, wrestling, and baseball. He also played the tenor saxophone in the school marching band. Leslie's problems obviously weren't at school. Let's look a little closer at the home situation for a minute. Family and friends reported that Leslie and Opal were always arguing about something. Opal was considered temperamental, domineering, and bossy. She seemed to go out of her way to torment Leslie, showing little interest in him, ridiculing his hobbies, and showing a marked preference towards Jim. Jim was often treated like, the, like an only child, which makes it easy to understand why Leslie might be a little jealous of Jim. A childhood friend of Leslie's uh, recalled that Leslie's mild-mannered father was henpecked and that Leslie's parents were loners. That friend said Les' parents were, I think, unusual, and I think that maybe the most non-pejorative uh, word, uh, his mother was very strange. We later thought she was mentally ill, though. I don't have any do any documentation for that. But the way she treated him, I think Les was emotionally abused. I can remember him just wringing his hands. He would get so upset with his mom, and he always did that. This, she said, it seemed to me uh, Leslie's mother was excessively and compulsively hard on him, and Les would become extremely agitated beyond normal. Another friend said he was wound a little tighter than the average, but he was more intelligent than the average person and very talented. The fact was that Opal had actually been hospitalized twice after nervous breakdowns. That was a seldom discussed issue within the family. There was a long and seemingly endless argument over Leslie's steady girlfriend, Crystal. Opal had a problem with her because um, she said that Crystal's family was trash, largely based on the fact that Crystal's father was a truck driver. According to Leslie uh, and some of his high school friends, Opal had thrown him out of the house on several occasions, forcing him to want sleep in the uh, Axarben stables, which were across the street from their home. Another time, Leslie had to take a job as a living caretaker in an apartment building um, so he'd have a place to sleep. Jim later contradicted his brother's story about the lockouts. He claimed that his mother had locked Leslie out of the house after he had decided to spend too much time with his girlfriend rather than go on a family weekend trip and that the other punishments were brought on by Leslie's erratic uh, behavior and tantrums. But Opal also occasionally locked her own husband out of the house as well. Um, I think it is fair to say that Opal had some unaddressed mental issues. The same was probably true of Leslie as well, though. Um, everything going on at home between Opal and Leslie created a pressure cooker in Leslie's head. The pressure cooker became too much, and the lid, quite frankly, blew off. 
On the day he murdered his parents, Leslie was excited about his date with Crystal to the drive-in that night. Assured by his mother that he could take the car, um, just before noon, he phoned Crystal and stretched the phone cord under the door to his room for privacy. Opal pulled the door open and yelled at her son, saying words to the effect that if anything is said behind closed doors, it is not worth saying, and also added that Crystal was no good. That, of course, set Leslie off. A loud argument followed, and Opal said, You are not going to the drive-in tonight. Leslie punched a wall, and Opal sent him to his room. He went to his room and listened to records while he calmed down. He returned downstairs later and asked his mother to reconsider, but another argument began. He took a walk outside, and at that point, he told the police that that is when he got a crazy idea in his head. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon. Leslie went to his parents' room, opened the closet, took out the twenty-two caliber semi-automatic Remington rifle, and walked down to the kitchen and confronted his mother. Leslie later told the police that he didn't intend to shoot his mother, but he couldn't take her laughing at him anymore. He recalled um, Opal falling backwards to the floor, screaming in pain, and <clears throat> then he, uh, he recalled standing over her, aiming at her chest and pulling the trigger five more times. Leslie said, I can't explain it. She seemed in pain, and I didn't want to hurt her anymore, but I just kept shooting. He'd later say that he tried to talk to her to tell her he was sorry. When his father returned home, he was carrying bags of groceries under his arms. Um, he looked at his wife and then at his son and said, What have you done? And then charged Leslie, who shot him. As he had with his mother, he stood over his father's body and fired dead aim into his chest. Realizing what he had done, he panicked. He laid on the couch and broke into cold sweats. After a half an hour, he stood up, composed himself, and covered the bodies and dragged them to the basement. So how do we know all of this? Well, it's because Leslie told this story himself. He didn't get away with the murder of his parents. Well, he kind of did, but we're not to that point quite yet. As a 16-year-old, I'm sure Leslie didn't think about how he was going to keep up this story long-term. So two weeks after Leslie murdered his parents, everything begins to fall apart. So on a Friday, two weeks later, one of Arnold's neighbors, uh, Alfred Vacanti, asked Leslie about uh, his parents. For some reason, though, Alfred didn't believe Leslie's answer and reported the disappearance of the Arnolds to the police. Earlier that same day, Leslie's grandmother called Rose uh, Grossman, who was still taking care of Jim, of course. She called to ask if her daughter-in-law had left any instructions before leaving town. Grossman, uh, Rose said no, but then asked about the lost grandfather. The grandmother had no idea what she was talking about. Rose, who now said that everything was just a little too odd, does some investigating of her own. She checked and learned that there were no trains at the time Leslie said his parents had left. Rose then called the Omaha police and told them that uh, what she had learned. Later that night, Leslie and Crystal attended a football game. 
while Leslie was occupied at the game, his great uncle also went to the police and reported the Arnolds missing. So the next day, police locate Leslie. They picked him up at Bill's place of business, Watkins Product Company. Bill Arnold owned the Omaha regional office of Watkins Products, a direct sales company that sold spices, cleaning supplies, and other household goods door-to-door. He financially supported the family, which allowed Opal to be a stay-at-home mom. When the police walked into the Watkins Product Company, they find Leslie was on the phone making plans with Crystal to attend church on Sunday. As you may be guessing, he never made it to church with Crystal. Leslie was taken to the police station where police questioned him about his parents' whereabouts. Leslie, whom I can only imagine, was tired of keeping up with the lies and guilty conscience, broke down very quickly. He told police everything. That same afternoon, while in handcuffs, Leslie showed officers the location of the shallow grave. As he pointed to a spot, um, a neighbor who was watching called out, Oh, Leslie, how could you do it? And for the first time since the murder, he had showed emotion when his lip started to tremble and his arms shook. So police dug up the Arnold's bodies from a flower bed of lilac bushes in the backyard. Firemen and volunteers searched the Papio Creek area at the southwest edge of Omaha to find the three dining room rugs Leslie had used to cover his uh, dead parents with. Unfortunately, though, the search for the rugs was unsuccessful. The dig for the bodies went slowly after the shovel crews found Opal's arm which had been somehow separated from her body. Now, if you remember, Leslie had tied Opal's feet and wrists together with that leather belt to move her. They believed that might have caused the arm to become removed from the body. Because at the time, they didn't know if Leslie had chopped up the bodies, the diggers had to work carefully so not uh, so that no evidence would be lost. So, 16-year-old Leslie is held at the juvenile detention ward of the county jail. Things change for Leslie, Leslie at that point, and he becomes probably a little depressed and lonely. He asks that reporters who come to interview him stay for a while and talk to him. His girlfriend, Crystal, came to interview him, and she tells reporters talking to him made her feel a lot better. Leslie spent hours talking with the jail chaplain, his uncles, Leonard Wisner and Benjamin uh, Benjamin McCommon, I'm sorry, visited and otherwise supported him in as much as they could despite his heinous acts. Leslie was given a series of thorough psychi- psychiatric evaluations, all of which concluded that he was sane. He expressed remorse over his actions. He said, I have learned a great deal since I've been in here, and I wish I knew then what I know now. My parents were wonderful people. This I learned too late, and I'm sorry. How I ever went wrong, I'll never know, he continues. I've got a lot of making up to do. So a psychiatrist who examined Leslie concluded, in his opinion, that the mother's behavior towards the youth certainly was a uh, force in helping to precipitate his actions. And the prosecutor agreed. The first-degree manslaughter charges were uh, lowered. 
Leslie collapsed at his first court hearing, weeping and falling into the arms of a nearby deputy sheriff. In June of 1959, on advice of counsel, Leslie pled uh, guilty to two charges of second-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison. The prosecutor had a case for first-degree manslaughter because he suspected that uh, when Leslie went to the parents' room to retrieve the gun, that he had loaded it before returning to the kitchen, which would have been premeditated. But Leslie insisted that the gun was already loaded. However, workers at the uh, Axar Bend days later found a box of 22 caliber bullets that Arnold, uh, I'm sorry, that Leslie had at some point tossed over the fence. So Leslie pleaded, uh, pled guilty and was set to serve his life sentence at the Nebraska State Penitentiary. The state prosecutor said to Leslie just before he uh, was sent off to prison, it's not going to be forever, Leslie. The fact was that the state normally uh, commuted the life sentence after about 10 years of hard time, and certainly Leslie would have been paroled in light of his uh, in light of his mother's mental health issues and his age. As a 16-year-old, uh, he was the youngest prisoner in the prison. Everyone from the warden on down was protective of him because he was so young and unsophisticated, and he was just a kid. Leslie was pretty much a model prisoner. He adjusted to prison, and he adjusted well. He, comp he completed his high school education, became a tutor, and worked with remedial students. He served as editor of the prison newspaper, and he played saxophone in the prison band. He was also made a trustee. Things began to change, though, and not for the better, by 1964. Maybe that was because his appeal had been denied. His appeal was based on his claim that he had not been told of his right against self-incrimination, that he was pressured into pleading guilty, and that he was locked up for eight months before the plea deal to allow the publicity to die down. Whatever caused the change didn't matter much after July 14th of 1967. After serving eight years, 24-year-old Leslie escaped prison. He wasn't alone, though. 32-year-old James Edward Harding escaped with Leslie. James Harding, also of Omaha, was a fellow trustee. He, too, was a murderer who had shot and killed a patron at a bar during a holdup. Leslie and James Harding lived in the minimum security unit, which was outside of the prison's main walls, with 237 other convicts. Harding was assigned to the dormitory store, and Leslie worked in the kitchen. They were both uh, present for what uh, they were both present for uh, that evening's first count at 5 p.m. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me. <laughs> They were both present for that evening's first uh, first count at 5 p.m. bed check and were not missed until about 7.30 a.m. the next morning when a guard spotted a blue prison shirt on the prison's fence. They had placed two dummies in their beds so that they uh, could pass the midnight bed check. Inmates got rid of the dummies first thing in the morning, which bought uh, the two convicts about a 14-hour lead before their escape was discovered. 
The two had sawed-off bars from the dorm's music room window. During the day, Leslie and James Harding took turns slipping into the music room to saw the bars. When they had sawed through the bars, they used chewing gum to hold the bars in place until they were ready to make their escape. With the bars cut, they went out of the window and sprinted 30 feet to the fence line, which was only 20 feet from a guard shack. And then they scaled a 12-foot lighted fence where Leslie had his shirt torn off by the barbed wire fence, uh, uh, by the barbed wire at the top of the fence. Once over the fence, they ran across the railroad tracks and then hid in a wooded area until a friend, supposedly a recently released ex-con, drove up. On the drive to Omaha, they cut the plastic trusty bracelets off their wrist and changed into civilian clothes. The ex-con let them out at the West Lane's bowling alley. What happened next was just really kind of lucky. Leslie called a childhood friend, Jim Child. Jim Child recalls Leslie being an all-American guy growing up, which is why he didn't mind helping him out. It was decades before Jim, before Jim Child admitted to his part in Leslie and James uh, Harding's escape. That night, when Leslie escaped, Jim Child recalled sitting at home watching TV with his girlfriend. Then the phone rang. The voice asked, Jim, this is Les. Les Arnold. A friend of mine and I just escaped the pen. We're down at 72nd and Dodge at a bowling alley. We need help. Child just said, okay, and drove with his girlfriend to the bowling alley where Leslie and Harding suddenly appeared out of the shadows and leaped into the car's back seat. Leslie said to him, why in the hell did you bring your girlfriend? Let's get out of here. We started off, Child said. I handed him a duffel bag, which I had put some pants and shirts into, and pretty sure I made a couple of sandwiches, probably tuna fish. I took all of the money I had with me, which was less than a hundred bucks, and ended up giving him most of it. As they drove down the road, a police car approached, and Leslie and Harding wondered aloud if they should duck, but they stayed seated, and the cruiser passed right on by. Child noted that the escaped convicts were wearing uh, civilian clothes and therefore he figured that someone had already helped them. Jim Child drove the escaped convicts to the train station in Council Bluffs, but no train was heading east for six hours, so he drove them to the bus station in downtown Omaha. He bought two tickets for a bus leaving for Chicago in 20 minutes, then went back to the car and gave money to Les, who seemed sorry he'd involved him in the escape. In the escape, I'm sorry. Les thanks, thanked Jim. They shook hands. Jim wished him well, and the two convicts left on the next bus. Child's girlfriend must have talked, though. A week later, the FBI came to uh, Child's work, uh, came to Child's and questioned the family about Leslie Arnold and asked if they had seen him. They wanted to know, the agent said, because Child's name uh, was on the prisoner visitor log a week before Leslie had escaped. I was a seminary student, and I lied like crazy, Child admitted. Six months later, Child was driving in California when he was pulled over by another crew of FBI agents and questioned again about being in contact with Leslie Arnold. 
Once Leslie and James Harding reached Chicago, they met a sympathetic priest who gave them shelter for a few days. Leslie found a job washing dishes at a restaurant in the Loop. Then he met a girl and moved in with her. James Harding left for Los Angeles. Back in Nebraska, though, everyone is shocked. No one expected these two trustees to escape. They seemed so well-adjusted to the prison lifestyle. Leslie had became a trustee after only five years, and he gave no trouble to anyone inside the prison. He was helpful to the extent that he had helped out as a writer at the governor's mansion the previous Christmas. The manhunt that followed covered four states, but was concentrated on northeastern Nebraska around Lincoln and Omaha. Helicopters were used, and the FBI was called into the search as well. Neither one of them is sophisticated enough, uh, a sophisticated enough criminal to remain at large for long, the warden said. Well, he was half right. Once in Los Angeles, Harding was determined not to get captured. Harding was well be <clears throat> was behaving himself and not getting drunk or getting rowdy, and and getting and he wasn't getting into trouble with the cops. And then in the spring of 1968. He's sitting in a bar, minding his own business, and he's got the real misfortune of looking a lot like James Earl Ray. If you don't know, or you forgot, James Earl Ray is the man who murdered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th of 1968. He was eventually arrested at London's Heathrow Airport on June 8th of 1968. Anyway, that day on May 1st of 1968, James Harding is just sitting at a bar in Los Angeles, minding his own business and not causing any trouble um, when someone sees him. They say, oh goodness, he looks like James Earl Ray, so they call the police. Police make contact with him, and he gives them the name Fred Arthur Edmonds Jr. Police know that something isn't right, so they take him into custody. He was later identified um, by the FBI as James Harding. Harding was out in the world, basically a free man, for about 10 months. He was later quoted about his time away as saying it was kind of worth it. So, of course, Harding goes back to prison and ends up being released only eight years later when his life sentence was commuted by the state and he was released on parole. Harding um, also said, it drove me nuts those nine months looking over my shoulder all the time. I feel for less if he's still alive. So Harding is captured, but there is still no sign of Leslie. He was doing a really good job of being inconspicuous. That was until 1974, about seven years after Leslie's escape. That is when police in Oregon stopped a man for drunk driving. Police ran a fingerprint comparison uh, check with the FBI. On this guy. The FBI confirmed the man the cops had arrested was Leslie Arnold, but by the time word got back to the authorities in Oregon, the man had been released. Similarly, in the early 1970s, uh, the exact year is unknown, the Omaha police reported that the department received a teletype from a law enforcement agency in Oregon asking them whether Leslie Arnold was still wanted. But before the department could respond, the agency had released the man that they were holding. 
Woody Dillman, a neighbor of Leslie Arnold, said that an FBI agent told him that Leslie had been arrested during the 1968 riots at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. But like all of the others arrested uh, that week, he was released without charges. Leslie may also have dropped by Crystal's house one night in 1968, according to Crystal's father anyway, but he fled when a neighbor recognized him. Interestingly enough, Crystal's parents were given temporary parental custody over Leslie after the murders. In, in an interview after he was paroled from prison, Jim Harding made the offhanded remark that Leslie Arnold had told him that he believed if he fathered a child in Brazil, he would never be extradited back to the United States. So now let me tell you where this story gets a little better. As an investigator for the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services, Jeff Britton, I'm sorry, Jeff Britton started examining cold cases of escaped prisoners and became enthralled at Leslie Arnold's case. I mean, aren't we all though? Britton subpoenaed phone records and checked fingerprint databases and commissioned an updated image of what Leslie might look like more recently. He found Leslie's brother and interviewed him, as well as Leslie's old girlfriend and some others. It was Britton who figured out uh, who the ex-con was that drove the getaway car the night Leslie and James escaped. In a stroke of genius, Britton checked to see if anyone had searched for his name online. He found that someone had consistently checked for Nebraska investigator Jeff Britton. The person looking for him had used an internet service uh, provider in South America. At around the same time, Britton discovered that someone had been searching the corrections department's online inmate database for Leslie Arnold. However, um, whoever was doing this wasn't searching using Arnold's name, but instead they searched for his inmate number 20841. That number probably wouldn't have been widely known. That search had also originated in South America. Then, in 2017, a Brazilian immigration document was found offering some proof that Leslie Arnold had indeed fled to Brazil within 17 months of his 1967 prison escape. On the card, issued on December 7th of 1968, Leslie Arnold used his real name, birth date, and even his place of birth, Omaha, Nebraska. A type notation on the back of the card said that Interpol, the international policing agency, had noted that Leslie Arnold was wanted by the FBI and they had requested more information on him. The FBI wasn't made aware of Leslie's entry into Brazil by Interpol or the Brazilian government. There is some speculation that an attempt was made to locate Leslie, but if that did occur, the result of that search is unknown. And that is it. That is all we know about William Leslie Arnold. He is still missing, and he could very well still be alive at the age of 77. It is believed that he... Uh, that the change of, um, I'm sorry, it is believed that the chance of a person permanently escaping prison is about 99 to 1. 
And well, it seems like Leslie Arnold may have done it. In case you were curious, after his 1976 parole at the age of 41, Harding got married and worked as a laborer at Omaha Civic Auditorium. He played golf when he could and he enjoyed watching football. He retired in 1997 and moved to Oregon. He has since died of cancer in 2008. Jim Arnold, Leslie's younger brother, grew up parentless, of course. He grew up living with relatives in Kansas City. He eventually married and had two children. He also had a long career as a music teacher. Of course, he struggled his entire life with his parents' murder, and he has never forgiven his brother for what he did. Jim Arnold has actually done some interviews about his brother, uh, his brother, the murder of his parents, and how he feels about his brother's escape. Um, I'm glad that Jim Arnold was actually able to make something of himself and live a relatively normal life, despite um, the drama caused by his brother. But I know that it is still probably one of those things for him that he could never get over. So that is the case of the still missing William Leslie Arnold. I hope that you enjoyed it. And I also hope that you understand why I had to tell this story in a whole bonus episode. I have to give credit to uh, John William Tui, who wrote about Leslie's story on my writer's website. Um, I got a large majority of my information from there because truthfully there was so much information uh, here and his article laid it out beautifully and prevented me from having to jump between multiple articles on multiple sites and at the same time try to keep the timeline in order. Um, so if you feel so inclined there are photos of Leslie Arnold online including the age progression photo I mentioned. Um, there are also photos of the house uh, where uh, the location where they found Opal and Bill pictures of Leslie with his parents pictures of Leslie in school pictures of Leslie in prison as well as uh, pictures of the prison itself at the time you can also see a picture of Harding after his capture and a photo of the immigration document that was found in 2017 all of those photos can easily be found on uh, John Tui's article on my writer's site. I think it's .com. Um, it's really everything about this case on one single page. Um, so if you if you are interested in reading basically the same thing that I just told you, you can head on over. You can actually Google search, and it would probably pick it up very quickly. So thank you everyone for tuning in again. Um, this has been uh, bonus episode two, or as I like to call it, the Lanyap episode two. I'll be back with a regular episode next week where I will tell you more about those never to be seen again.